the particle physicists at the CERN lab cheered like spectators at a football game. The quest to find the elusive Higgs boson was over. The god particle had been found. But as scientists cheer, should men and women of faith boo? As we continue part two of our sermon titled, A Tough University Crowd, with our study leader Dave Wurtson, turn to Acts chapter 17 and listen as the Apostle Paul speaks to the atomists of his day. In CERN, which is on the border between Switzerland and France, scientists gathered together and they put up on the screen pictures that give evidence that the Higgs boson is really true. And they're still working to verify it. And the way that it works is that way back in 1964, Peter Higgs, who was a physicist at Edinburgh University in Scotland, along with five others, not in the same university, but there were six papers that predicted that if our view of the Big Bang was true, that there was like a molasses field. That would be one of the ways for you to picture it. And as particles, they couldn't even call them particles, but as waves go through this molasses field, it slows them down enough that they gain mass. You know, an E equals MC squared, just hang with me. And I don't understand it any better than you do, but I just want to give you a feel for what's happening. These physicists predicted using elegant math, very powerful math, they, they, they were able to use this math to predict that based upon the, the ideas of what we're learning about quantum physics, that there has to be this field, and if we hit it hard, en- if we hit it hard enough, your watch will fall apart. <laughs> All right, there we go. Put that up there. If we hit it hard enough that these waves flying through at the speed of light will slow down enough, and they'll gather mass, and They only exist for a split second, I mean thousands and thousands of a second, but they predicted that we could get evidence, that we could get an accelerator big enough that could generate the energy needed, they could smash, what they call it the Higgs field, and that would cause a Higgs boson to explode and then disintegrate, and we'd be able to take a picture of what emitted from that. Does it all make sense? Just in a really short summary, this was a giant leap for science. That's what the economist said. This was a giant leap for science. Because what it showed is that our basic idea, what your kids are taught in physics, what you'll learn in the university about the Big Bang Theory and about the way that the atom is put together and all these mesons, quarks, and fuons, and color rotation, all kinds of stuff that is right at the cutting edge of particle physics was true. And all that could have taken place right here south of Midlothian at the big particle accelerator that was smashed because of politics. And that's the way that it goes. But I want you to realize what you could have been a part of. They mentioned that this is a giant leap for silence. They call the Higgs boson the God particle. Anybody ever heard that? I guarantee that there's tons of believers all over the, the world today that are saying this is a horrible thing and, and it's terrible that we found it and these arrogant scientists, they even call it the God particle. One of the things I want you to understand is that truly understanding what God has done and truly understanding what science has done in the end is not going to be contradictory. It's one of the ideas I want to get across to you today. 
Our God that's revealed in the Bible can handle a particle accelerator that took billions and billions of dollars and 6,000 scientists analyzing the pictures to be able to figure out one little part of what he did to create the universe. I want you to understand that. It's very important for us to do good science and good biblical understanding. And I'm going to try to give you some biblical understanding into the way Paul would speak to that crowd. What I do want you to know about the God particles, where that name came from, it's from a book. It was called The God Particle. If the universe is the answer, then what is the question? It was written by Leon Letterman back in 1993, which is a, a good summary book for you to understand a little bit about particle theory. He was in charge of our Fermi lab up in Illinois, and he wrote this book, and it was actually his editor that called it The God Particle. And the reason that they called it that is that it was so elusive to find. In fact, Peter Higgs, it's named after the Higgs boson, Peter Higgs himself is an atheist, but he respects our beliefs today. And he was really concerned that Letterman's title, The God Particle, would cause even more antagonism to take place between those that believe in the religion, believe in God, and his work as a particle physicist, okay? There's tremendous debate taking place. From a scientist perspective, they believe a story. And the reason I'm going to tell you this, I can think of two of our kids right now that grew up in our church. They learned all the Awana verses. They did all the stuff. And today, they're wandering away from biblical faith. So this is a real thing. Now, what happened? They went into the university. They started studying science. And they really feel that science tells the true story. And the Bible is a myth and a fairy tale. They were told in science that religion is the big thing that blocks science. And I want to tell you, I agree with that. In the Middle Ages, Copernicus was a Roman Catholic monk. And you need to make sure your kids understand that. Copernicus that wrote all the math that said that the earth wasn't the center of the solar system, as Ptolemy said, but that the sun was. He was a Roman Catholic monk. And what he was fighting against was not biblical revelation. The Bible never says that the, that the earth is the center of the solar system. The Bible does tell a story that says the earth is the center of God's redemptive program. There's a difference. The earth being the center of God's redemptive program doesn't mean that God created it as the center of the universe. And theologians had made that mistake, and Copernicus followed his math and developed an elegant presentation of our solar system as you know it today. Galileo put two lenses together, and he was able to verify, like he saw spots on the sun, he was able to measure movement, and he was able to prove, and he was able to prove, for example, that Venus was not rotating around the earth, but was rotating around the sun. In a science classroom, you'll be taught this basic story. Religion is about leaps in the dark. It's not about cold facts. It's about believing in unseen things that nobody can ever prove, and you need to make that leap. But you need to understand that the spiritual religious world blocks the real story of science. And what you need to do is to be committed to science. If you're really going to grow in wisdom, you need to commit yourself to the hard facts and the experimentation of science. And what science shows us is that the Higgs boson, now we know for sure, not really for sure, because if you're really a true scientist, you say, well, man, the whole thing could be overturned, which is where the Economist article is going to end. 
in true science. In fact, they end the article saying, maybe we're going to find something else. And there's things beyond the boson. In fact, now they're developing string theory. And some of you read about that. It goes on and on. There's also black matter, which is the majority of matter in the universe. But black matter doesn't attract light at all. And we don't have any idea quite yet how the black matter interacts with the light matter. The story goes on and on. Well, if I'm a university professor, I teach you that your Sunday school beliefs, what the kids learned from the Bible is a bunch of ancient myth. And then I show you some supposed errors in the Bible and our kids are gone. I want to challenge all of you as parents and I want to challenge all of the kids. You need to realize that science is telling you a story and so is the Bible telling you a story. In science over here, most of those 6,000 physicists that cheered when they saw those pictures, most of them go under this basic assumption that whatever we do in science, we need to eliminate God from the equation. The basic premise I can illustrate it to you, like let's suppose you go and get a brand new Toyota truck, like a Tundra like I have. And as you get in the truck and you really like the truck and you're really thankful for the truck, the person that sold you the Tundra says, I want to introduce you to the Japanese engineer who designed this truck. And then I also have three of the workmen that work to put together the truck, and they bring the engineer that designed your truck, and they bring some people that built it for you, and you totally ignore them. You say, well, I, I don't think anything about them. All I am focusing on is my truck. And you also have the idea that your truck came together through random collision. And your whole idea is if you're really going to really understand Tundra trucks, you need to eliminate engineers and workmen. My analogy could easily be attacked, but I want to understand that that's a basic premise that our kids are exposed to. Modern science often will say that we can't put God in the gaps, and I want you to know that I'm not talking about putting God in the gaps. I'm putting God in everything. What I'm going to present to you today is that the Apostle Paul, way back in the first century, met with the atomists of his day. And we've come a long way. Democritus believed in atoms. He, he postulated there was a single particle that was behind everything. And that was the beginning of the atomic theory. Epicurus, that we learned about the last time we were together, built a philosophy on that, that this life is all there is, that whatever gods there might be, they don't have anything to do with this clash of the atoms. And then he says the only meaning you can find in life is to have pleasure. And he wasn't talking about just hedonism. You need to have pleasure wisely. And he built a whole philosophy about that. And I told you last week also about a man named Zeno who developed a philosophy called Stoicism because he taught among these Stoas, these columns in the city of Athens. And Zeno taught that you don't live for pleasure. You need to live for discipline. You need to live for reason. You need to live for self-control. You need to live for patriotism, your nation. What I want you to know, philosophically, life hasn't changed that much. That was 350 years before Christ that Epicurus and Zeno were teaching like that. To be honest with you, in reading it for a lot of years, things haven't really changed that much. If you analyze Letterman, if you analyze Hicks, they build the meaning of their life pretty much either the way Zeno did or the way Epicurus did. Now, what I want you to do is open your Bible and find out how does the Apostle Paul speak to an audience like this? And as you're turning to Acts chapter 17, we just spent billions of dollars to find the elusive Higgs boson.
And then multiple scientists believe whatever God there is, like a lot of scientists will give you the benefit of the doubt. There might be some ultimate reason out there. But we're not going to let that ultimate reason invade our postulation because we're going to figure it out just materially. That's what a naturalist believes. That makes sense? That's what they hold. The premise I want to present to you is as you sit here today and as Letterman sit there and as Higgs sits there, I want to tell you something. The boson was really hard to find. And it took incredible math that only Sam would understand in his room, but I don't understand it. Took incredible math that has incredible hypothetical predicting power. It took incredible engineers to build this big accelerator. It took incredible engineers to develop all the analysis of that. And finally we found it, and we applaud after, since 1964, it took a quest all these years to solve the mystery of the missing Higgs boson. But I want to present an incredible thing to you. The smallest child sitting here in this room today can find God. Did you hear what I just said? I want to tell you something. The most brilliant scientists in our world believe that it's impossible to find God. And the premise of the Apostle Paul is going to tell you is that that's a lie. In fact, I want to tell every one of you, every one of you in this room, if you want to find God, he's not hard to find. And you don't have to go to France or Switzerland. You don't have to spend billions of dollars. You can just sit there. And if you'll follow what the Apostle Paul says in his message, you're going to find out every single one of you can find God. And you can also find out what happens after you die, which Barbara Walters did a two-hour special on heaven, and she gave you the Dalai Lama, she gave you Joe Olstein, she gave you beyond-life experiences where people went unconscious and died and saw a great light. She had a whole program for two hours. And basically, the thrust of the argument was Epicurean. It makes us feel good. Like one of her leading authors said, suppose there isn't any heaven. What harm has it done? It makes us feel good. So the basic thrust of the argument is the Dalai Lama has his thing. Joel Olstein has his thing. Roman Catholic priests have their thing. They have a leading Mormon that gave his thing that says you're all going to be all right eventually. Okay. And the program basically ended with almost all Americans believe there's a heaven. So what harm can it do? What I want to share with you, the Apostle Paul will say, no, your faith needs to be built on a lot more than I got a feeling. That just isn't going to work. So how did Paul do it? Well, he starts out, men of Athens. Look at Acts chapter 17, verse 22. He says, then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. Now, what he does in this audience is he's trying to reach, he's trying to deal with the crowd that is hostile to him. In fact, they had killed Socrates over the charge that he had introduced false gods, strange gods, a few hundred years before this. They poisoned him. And so there's a little bit of tension, only I think Luke loosens it up a little bit. By the time we come to the early, in the 50s, about a few years after Jesus was crucified and risen from the dead, Athens has mellowed a little bit. I don't think Luke means to imply that Paul's life is on the line. Because he says that they love to meet and discuss new ideas, that that's all that Athenians do. But I also want you to know that the question, is there a God and is there a supreme being, 
One of the things I want all the kids to know especially is today, most people, even most intellectuals, really believe that there's a God, something out there. And they'll have lots of different names for them. The ultimate reason, they'll tell you stories about maybe, maybe supernatural beings came from other planets. Even when I talk to the physicists that were going to run the super collider, I ask them, what do you believe? And one of their, the guy that was running the whole thing was saying, well, I read science fiction, and I really think there's other worlds that intersect with our world. What I'm saying is, if you push most scientists, they really hold that your religion's okay, we don't go along with your fairy tales, but go ahead and believe because maybe there is somebody bigger than you and I. That was true when Paul preached in Athens, and it's still true today. One of the common grounds is that we tend to be religious. And when you're talking to people and they're antagonistic, one of the things you want to learn to do is try to start out where they agree. Start out with the areas where you agree. So the Apostle Paul begins his message and says, as I was coming up to the Areopagus, and as I've been in Athens looking around your city, I see that you have statues to your gods all over the city. And you have built beautiful buildings. The Parthenon, which if you're an architect, you've got to study. The Parthenon is one of the most beautiful buildings that's ever been built in the world. And it was dedicated to the gods. It's a temple. That's what the Parthenon is, okay? So Paul picks up on this. This whole city of Athens believes in all of these gods. So it's a point of common interest. So what he does is he noticed as he was coming up to the Areopagus that they had one statue. And the caption on the statue was to the unknown god. The Greeks were so religious, they said, we want to make sure we cover all the bases. That makes sense? So we name Jupiter, we name all these other gods, Zeus and Mercury. We name all the different gods, but we want to make sure we cover the bases because if you leave someone's name out when you're supposed to be honoring somebody, that can be bad news. We don't want to leave anybody out, so we'll have an unknown god to the unknown god. The Apostle Paul sees that as a point of connection. So today, maybe some of you are sitting there, and as you listen, you say, well, Dave, you know, I don't buy all this biblical stuff, and I'm really into the CERN experiment, and I really believe in science, but I'm willing to be open. Maybe there's somebody unknown. Maybe there's something or someone that's out there. Stick with me. I'll start there with you. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He says, I know that you all are very religious. Even Peter Higgs says, I don't want you to call it the God particle because I don't want to offend religious people. And that attitude is revealing, I, I, maybe there is something. You know, I don't know. I'm enough of a scientist to say, let's have peace, okay? So the Apostle Paul begins with a point of connection. Then he goes through a series of points that most of his audience would agree with. Now, in our culture, a lot of people don't agree with this, but I want you to look at the points the Apostle Paul makes. He says, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. So I'm going to lead you from the unknown to the known. He's got their attention because all of us want to move from the unknown to the known. Then he starts in. Now we're going to say, I'm going to tell you the unknown God, one of his characteristics, there's a God who made the world and everything in it. And he is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made with hands. Now, here's the point of agreement. Almost everybody listening to him would agree that buildings, that the Parthenon and all the temples can't contain whatever divine being. If there is a divine being that made all the universe, 
then could he be contained in a building? How many of you believe that that makes sense? If there really is an eternal God, then it would make sense that he can't be contained in a temple, in a building, okay? Most of Paul's audiences, the philosophers among them, argued like that. They said, we will put up with all the superstition of the people. We'll not try to rumble feathers. But we know if there is an ultimate reason, like a Stoic would hold there was a great ultimate reason, if there is an ultimate reason, one thing for sure, that if he's the one that generated all of this present universe, you couldn't hold him in a building. I talked to you last week. I don't want to hear, some of you say, we're in the holy sanctuary this morning. Some of you are raised with a culture. You need to get dressed up for the holy sanctuary. The church is the sanctuary. I want you to think hard about that. This is a gym. Look at the basketball court. I don't care how many candles you put up here. This is not the dwelling of God. If we meet out there in the lawn and I gather with you, I'm meeting with an intensification of the presence of God. Jesus, our Savior, got killed because he resisted the idea that the temple in Jerusalem was the holy place that could contain the great I am. He said, I am the great I am. And he told you when you received Jesus as your Savior that you became the holy place. And what's amazing is believers start to get really hung up on their holy places that they built. And in our church, it's ludicrous to do that because if you want to have holy places, go to St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. It really is beautiful. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't take care. I want you to volunteer for Skip's work day. That's really important. But I don't want to motivate you as a pastor because you're somehow making a building that God can dwell in. This is a building that we can use together to reach people for Jesus. Does that make sense? Everybody understand that? The Greek philosophers are with me. They would be shouting, amen, amen, that's right. The great God of the universe doesn't live in temples, okay? Okay, that's the first point. The second point he goes on to say, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything in it. Now, how many of you are sitting there this morning think, I gave a little money this morning, and I helped God out at Midlothian Bible Church. Some of you are business people, and you have lots and lots of money. You keep God's cause going. I want you to know from the bottom of my heart, the Greek philosophers would say, if there is an ultimate God, you know what? He doesn't need us. I want to tell you something. God doesn't need me and he doesn't need anyone else to keep his work going. So if you're dependent upon anyone other than him, and if you think somehow because you did certain things and you gave certain things that God is going, wow, man, you rescued me. I thought all the world was going to go down in the hole. Then look at Dave Wurtzen showed up. I got news for you. The Greek philosophers would laugh at that. If there is this ultimate being, then he doesn't need any one of us. I want you to know something. It's a, it's a marvelous thing to serve God. It's an arrogant thing to think that he needs Dave Wordson or you or anyone else. Did you hear what I said? And this is really important because we idolatrously 
worship the Billy Grahams, the Joel Olsteins, the Chuck Swindles, the Tony Evans. At an evangelical church, we worship our gifted power people. Paul is speaking a very powerful message. He's saying he wants us to know something. As you sit here today, how many of you can feel your breath? Like if you do yoga, one of the things you do when they teach you yoga is you concentrate on your breath. If you're a born-again believer, every breath you concentrate on, I want you to say, thank you, Jesus, for my breath. I don't want you to get out of your head. I don't want you to go into some cataconic state. I want you as a living, thinking person to thank God that you're breathing. Because it's not the force that made you breathe, no matter what Richard Gere might say. It's God. Put your hand right here. Is anything happening in there? Good thump. Good thump. Good thump. Good thump. Are, are you worried about it? Some of you this morning are scared to death about that. You're all stressed out. And what the Apostle Paul just told you is an incredible thing. You know what? Your heart is going to go kathump, 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 and your lungs are going to keep going. And when you get really, really old, you're going to go. And if I'm still here as your pastor, I'm going to watch you go. Oh, no, it's the time. And then a minute later, you're going to go. And you go. And then you're going to stop. And we're all going to time it. You know what? Your breath and your heart isn't going to stop until your heavenly daddy, the Lord of the universe, says that's it for their physical life. That's why we're gathered together here. I want you this week. It'll relieve your stress much better than any yoga class you'll ever take if you'll just learn to accept, in him I breathe. In him my heart beats. I exist because of him. One of the most incredible things in the world is all those scientists cheered, but nobody prayed. Where did the Higgs boson come from? Who had the elegant engineering plan? Who created someone that could do mathematical equations? I haven't seen anything that happens randomly that by probability factors produces good equations. Have you seen it? Math is one of the most beautiful made in the image of God there is. So don't reject God because of that. Those scientists aren't demonstrating randomness and probability. They're demonstrating intention, purpose, reason, careful experimentation. Those things don't happen by chance, and everything around them screams that that's so, and yet they're proclaiming a philosophy that it's very hard says. There's no personal intention. Everything is just probabilities. Think hard about that. Paul is saying, wait a minute. There's a great ultimate creator that makes your heart beat. And therefore, he doesn't need it. Then he says this. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he gave to all men life and breath. For from one man, look at verse 26. From one man, he made every nation of men. Now, even in most evolutionary theory, will hold that you all go back to Lucy or something like Lucy in Africa. So I'm not saying that that's true. I'm just saying that if you're an anthropologist, if you're dealing with the latest theories 
in evolution, most evolutionary theories hold that the human genome that we just mapped out every one of the chromosomes, it ultimately goes back to one couple. Now, evolutionary theory really wouldn't theoretically project that because you could have had Koreans come up over in Korea somehow. If it happened in northern Africa, then maybe somebody else came up in northern Africa. So one of the things, especially early evolution taught, is that you didn't come from one person. So if you're going to follow science, I want you to understand something. There's great ethical implications to what you believe. What I just said, you know what? When you go into Oak Cliff, if you go to Korea with me next spring and, and go to Jeju Island and meet with a lot of Koreans and Japanese, red and yellow, black and white, they all go back to, and then they all go back to Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Every one of you are a Shemite, a Japhethite, or a Hamite. Every one of you. So you're all relative. When you go up to Oak Cliff and you hear someone say, hey, brother, you turn around and go, thanks, that's true. Here we are in the first century. That's pretty advanced thinking about the races. What Paul is arguing is that from one man, God generated all the races of men. You know what? You're proud of being a Texan. Do you know that you're a Texan? The Lord gave you your land and your home and everything. It was all in his plan before the world began. So thank him for that. If you're proud of that, if you're proud to be an American, what Paul is saying is that from that one man, the Lord gave every nation on earth that they would inhabit the whole earth. He determined the time set for them, that the kingdoms would come, the kingdoms would go. Do you know that God knows who's going to win the election in November? Did you hear what I just said? That's true. God already knows who's going to win. That's what the text just told us. He sets rulers up. He sets them down. So if you're afraid and stressed out, you need to work hard for your causes. That's part of being a human being. But don't do it feeling you're making the whole world hold together. Kingdoms will come and go. The English, until the middle of World War II, ruled the world. The sun never set on the British Empire. Now, the most notoriety that most British have is sending us their rock music and then overwhelm our rock star. If you're in the military, most of you are not afraid of the British Navy anymore, but you're really proud of your Navy. Do you realize there was a day when the British would have laughed at the American Navy? For hundreds of years, they laughed at the British Navy. Now we rule. But the Lord is saying, don't worship that because the reality of the world you live in, kingdoms will come and kingdoms will go. But this is an amazing thing. Why did God do that? He said, God did this. Look what it says in verse 27. So that men would seek him and perhaps grope for him. The idea is here, like, like Plato's old story about all the people in a dark cave where there's no light except for a little bit of light coming at the entrance. We're all groping around trying to find reality. Paul uses that imagery. He says, God did all this. So God gave you your breath. He gave you your home. He's giving you your physical life. Why did he do that? so that men would seek him, so that you would seek him, so that you would grow for him. And then he says an amazing thing. You know what? It's what I started out with. He says, though he's not far from each one of us. You know what Paul just, he just said, God isn't hard to find. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your poets have said, Aratus and Eremetides both said, we're his offspring. So they're still agreeing. 
Now he goes to the point, since we're his offspring, don't think you can worship gold and silver or stone, an image made by man's design. In the past, God overlooked all that idolatry, the idea, and the ignorance from that. But now he commands people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world in justice. What the Apostle Paul is saying is the God that created us, the God that gave us life, we should all know, everybody on planet Earth should know that you can't be a materialist and worship things. You can't worship little card idols that are covered with gold, which they did all over the ancient world. You can't worship our bank accounts. You can't worship our prosperity. You can't worship our homes. I want to ask you, what are you living for today? Like the scientists that gathered at CERN, and they all applaud, and nobody ever said anything to God. It's like me bringing the engineer that created your tundra and the workers that build it, and you totally ignore them. And all you focus on is your truck. Well, when, when it says that the Lord is the Lord of the universe, now I want you to listen really carefully to me. This is the Apostle Paul's argument. He's saying all human beings on planet Earth were created by God, and it's as plain as the nose on their face. Everybody should know that it's not just material because it took all of those scientists writing equations and doing research. They were screaming out, there's got to be someone that's the author of equations that created human intellect, that created the passion to discover, that created mystery, that created beauty, that wanted us to look at incredible pictures that would be incredibly gorgeous of what this elusive particle is. I want you to think hard about that because you live in a world where you walk in the university as if God is so far away and what Paul is saying, no, he isn't. And then he says this. He says, God has appointed a judgment day. Every single one of you, according to what Paul is saying, one day are going to be face-to-face with the creator, with the Lord of, the, of history, and I am too. And then he says an incredible thing. He's got nail prints in his hands. Because he says, God has appointed this one man, and he's going to judge us. And then one of the Athenians raised their hand and says, how do we know that's true? And he says, because he rose again from the dead. And that's when the audience fell apart. It says, when he mentioned the resurrection of the dead, it says, when they heard about the resurrection, verse 32, some of them sneered. So some of you today, And some of the people that you meet with as the years go by, you're going to mock that. Those kids that I shared that grew up in our church that have rejected it, they have been with a lot of scientists, and they think you as an evangelical, they mock you. They think you're a joke. And they think if you only get as smart as they are, and now we can live scientifically. So some sneer. That's a sad thing, but that's true. There will be others that delay some sneered, but some said, hey, we want to hear you again on this subject. But in every group you speak on, it says there will be a few men began following Paul, and they believed in Jesus. They followed after Paul. They walked away from the Areopagus. And you ladies, there was a woman named Damaris, and there was a man who was named Dionysius, and both of them became the beginning of the Athenian church. So some mocked, some delayed, some believed. As Barbara Walters did her whole special, one of the major things she shared is, you mean if I don't believe in Jesus, that I'm going to be eternally separated from God? How 
How bigoted could that ever get? I hear that argument all the time. Did you hear what I said today? Every single person that you meet on planet Earth has the witness of their heartbeat and their breath. And billions of people that live across the world, the living God is not far from any one of them. So if you go to Malaysia, you're not far from God. And there will be idols all over Malaysia, all over Indonesia. You live in a culture that says, oh, that's really, really good. Everyone needs to believe what they want. What Paul just told you is, no, it isn't good. You shouldn't worship things. Right here in the United States, we make gods out of our stuff. And he says, that's an act of treason. At CERN in the lab, when they all applauded Peter Hicks, that was a good thing. But when nobody prayed, when nobody bowed their head and says, thank you, God, that you created all this elegant stuff that we're beginning to explore, that we're learning about. It's more wonderful than we ever imagined and give us further wisdom so we can understand string theory and find out about black matter. There were some physicists that believed like that, but not many. Because in much of our world, God is just eliminated from the equation. In Barbara Walters' special, nobody ever said in two hours, hey, Maybe the people that had those out-of-life experiences, maybe they just had a flash in their brain. Somebody did say that. And maybe the, all these good feelings are just good feelings. Maybe Joel Olstein saying, Jesus is the way, and he brings a lot of hope to people, you know, maybe that's a good thing. But you know what nobody ever said? Hey, Barbara, there's one person in all of human history. Now listen as I close. This is really important. There's one person. You live in a world we're the most powerful, influential person. He's much more influential than the Dalai Lama. So before you read what the Dalai Lama does, you need to read what he says. There's one person in human history that's been in heaven. Come to this earth and actually died and then came back. That's why Paul preached the resurrection. I want all of you to know, before you leave Jesus, you need to analyze the resurrection. I almost guarantee you that the young people I'm talking about that rejected Jesus, I doubt very few of them read N.T. Wright's book on the resurrection. This is a tome. It'll take you ages to lean through. But if you think that our belief in the resurrection of Jesus is just a fairy tale, this is an Oxford professor. The resurrection of Jesus is one of the most proved realities in all of history. And if the resurrection is true, then I need to trust him because he is the one that is making a room in heaven for those that trust him. Let's bow our head and pray. I trust that all of you have joined and believed with the two, the man and the woman, at the end of Paul's message to trust in Christ. If you haven't, I want you to know right now, you can say, Dear Lord Jesus, I do believe you're closer than my heartbeat. I rejoice in that. And I thank you that Paul told me that Jesus rose again from the dead. And so I'm going to step over the line just like these two Athenians did and many others that joined them. I'm going to trust Jesus. I want you to know that that's a decision you make right in your heart. Just like the living God of the universe is talking to your heart right now, Jesus wants to enter your heart. If you're in that other group that you have questions, I want you to feel free. Ask friends. 
Come and talk to me. Ask all the questions you want about the Higgs boson. Ask about evolution. Ask about the dinosaurs. It's fine to ask about all that stuff. When we all learn together the truth of God's material world, it's going to totally line up with the truth of his revealed word that's in the scriptures. We don't need to be afraid of that. I want you to know that you don't need to, to feel that you can't ask questions. Ask all the questions you want. I pray with all my heart that if you're mocking today or if you have friends that are mocking, we want to just close this time and say, Dear Lord Jesus, I pray that you won't stop trying to pull those mockers to yourself. I pray that you'll keep working in the hearts of scientists that are mocking the belief in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen scientists like Francis Collins that was in charge of the human genome that really believes in Jesus and trust Jesus, and I just pray that you would really strengthen all of the scientists that are men and women of faith. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help them to be courageous and bold and share Christ. And I pray that you would help us to bring your presence into our schools and into our jobs, into the kids that we play with, and help us to have great opportunities. I pray that we'll see people come to Jesus as well. And use this message about the way that you reach through Paul a really tough university audience to reach some tough university audiences here in the 21st century. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.